Welcome to the show, everyone. This is a stakeholder-centered coaching production where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Today's episode is another installment in the series, Conversations with Coaches, where our top coaches share the behind-the-scenes unfolding of their careers. The goal of this series is to give you an intimate peek behind the curtain so you can see the messy ingredients that goes into building a successful coaching career and the rewards that come at the end of the tunnel for those who are willing to put in the effort. I'm your host, Brandon Murgard, and if you would like to ask a question or recommend a guest, send me an email to podcast at mgscc.net. That's podcast at mgscc.net. My guest today is a master certified stakeholder-centered coach who is CPCC certified and PCC certified with ICF, and she quickly made a name for herself with her business acumen and her demonstrable contributions to the Stakeholder Center Coaching practice, which led her to being hand-selected by co-founders Chris Coffey and Frank Wagner to join the exclusive group of coaches who supports the Stakeholder Center Coaching training programs by teaching and co-facilitating workshops. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, Emily Chipman. Great to have you on the show, Emily. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, Emily, you actually might not know this, but your name became quite familiar to me uh, quite a few years ago, long before we actually had the chance to meet. Um, back when I was living in Asia, I was managing our APAC and EMEA regions for a number of years before taking on the global operations. And during that time, uh, I was collaborating on a global initiative with uh, Frank and Chris. Well, I kept hearing your name come up in conversations and it was always positive. It was always just to say, you know, Emily knows her stuff. Um, and it carried this air of something bigger than, you know, is typically associated with coaches like um, subject matter expertise. Uh, I think a better way to put it would have been subject matter authority. Uh, it just <laughs> had this, this great air to it. And in any case, it was intriguing. And so yeah. since then, we've been fortunate to become more acquainted. I've had a chance to yeah. learn more about your story. Uh, but my hope today yeah. is to share that same curious intrigue with our audience as we look at how you've built such a powerhouse career for yourself. Okay. Um, you know, in light of your fairly diverse background, I'll start off the show with, uh, if you'll humor me, let's let's take a panoramic snapshot of your career. Could you give us the behind the back of the book kind of executive synopsis of Emily Chipman, and then we'll start hunkering down into the details. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's three things that you should know about me because it has colored my life from the time I was young until now. So the first thing is I'm always really interested in contributing value and doing my best. If I was in school, I worked as hard as possible to get the best grade possible. When I worked for an employer, I wanted to do the best I could. I wanted high performance reviews. And it wasn't about the grade. It was about really doing well. And you see that now in my, in my coaching engagements where there is a strong interest there. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I really care about relationships. Now, we know the world goes around with people getting jobs through connections. Leaders have to influence other people. But for me, it's almost even more than that. Um, I remember the first time I was in a leadership role, and I was so scared. I had no idea what I was doing. 
And I just remember thinking, I'm going to impact. I did not want to have a bad impact on people. I was very worried about how my team was doing, how they were feeling, if I was doing a good job meeting their needs. And um, spoiler alert, I actually had a lot of growth that needed to happen, but but I really cared about the people. And the third thing is that I've always wanted to live a meaningful life. Now, for me, that is faith, it's family, it's health. I actually have a spin bike that I set up behind my couch <laughs> in the basement because I was like, I know I'm going to want to watch TV, but I can be on my bike while I'm doing it. And then I feel okay. And these three things have really played a theme throughout my entire life. My undergrad was really focused in social sciences and looking at actually family systems. So how do people interact and influence each other when they are in such close settings? And there's there's dynamics there. And it, if that sounds like work, it's probably because some of the first times I heard about leadership dynamics, like the ratio of positive to negative feedback. The first time I heard about it was when I was an eight, when I was 18, sitting in a class on, on family stuff. Um, and it's been very helpful for me in terms of the people side. My master's was in public administration and really looked at things like program evaluation. Plus I had concurrent master's certification in leadership and management. And so these things have all come together for me professionally. My first job was something called performance audit, which sounds so crazy because people hear the word auditor and all they can think of is numbers. But actually, it was using the tools of organization development. We would go in and look at you know, the organization as a whole, what are the risk areas? Let's look at that a little bit further, see if we can come up with a plan, and then see how it goes. And if that sounds familiar to coaching, it's because it is. We take that time to get to know someone, find out what the strengths and the risks are, pick a goal, put a plan in place and see how it's going. So it's um, pretty consistent. I was doing uh, training while I was actually at that company. I promoted pretty quickly, went into, and while I was working, I was also helping train other employees and shifted from there to um, a little bit of time doing some coaching work on my own and then into an organization development role uh, for a university research hospital where I was doing employee engagement, leader development, instructional design, um, coaching, all of those things, and eventually stepped out on my own. So they've all come together full circle. And in each part of my life, I see that desire to contribute and make things better and to care about the people that are involved and also to have that really good balance of recognizing I want to do it while I'm living a meaningful life. Beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful and very succinct. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like um, leadership was a, a common theme or a thread throughout mm -hmm. your life. Um, can you tell can you tell us a little bit about where this interest in leadership and coaching really first appeared and how did your attention get drawn into the field? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question because they happened at different times. So I, I you know, I, I, I'm deciding how to start this, but I think what I just have to say is, I'm a little bit of a spontaneous person. And when I see a decision and I know it's the right thing, I jump. And I had an undergrad program. I knew it wasn't exactly where I wanted to land. And when I shifted to 
um, the master's in public administration, I knew when I was looking at this that if I was going to be in some sort of leadership role, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just running a program, but that I was doing a good job and leading it and contributing in a wonderful way. Now, my first roles weren't leadership roles, but they were looking at helping organizations become more effective and and really accomplish the mission that they had been given. And so it's interesting because that work was kind of, um, well, let me put it this way. I had these colleagues who would be like, ugh, we've got another meeting today. And I was like, yes, we have a meeting. And it was one of those key moments that I would think about for a little bit before I made some other shifts where I thought, you know, I really like people much more so than sitting and reading a file or, uh, but I, I loved the process of doing interviews and, and I just loved being around people. And I, as part of this, and it was such a great start for me to do this, this looking at these programs, because you really get an understanding of what can be affected in terms of program effectiveness with Things like the structure of roles and responsibilities, or how does uh, this process work, or this management approach. Um, but I don't mean leadership, because one of the things we didn't get too involved in in the first part of my career, and that we really didn't look at, was is that leader doing a good job? Are they a good leader? But I could see it, and it's one of the reasons that I then transitioned into the full time organization development role. Uh, I I did see, you know. If you really want to help an organization thrive, they need to be in the hands of good leaders. It's not enough to say all the cogs work and we've got good processes. Um, I like to say to people, great leaders today want to do great work with their business. They want results, but they also know that it's more than that. People want to show up and do meaningful work and they want to be treated well. And so while I was working at the university, of uh, at the, in the university hospital, part of the role was to do coaching, and I, you know, I, it's interesting because at that point I had been doing some coaching, but I hadn't been certified and trained in real coaching skills, and I loved it. I look back and I recognize I was using some really good skills. I was doing good technique, but it was after I left and decided to go on my own that I really invested and went into more development on my coaching skills and capacities. It almost seems like through this evolution of your career, you've been preparing for this role your whole life. Would you agree with that? That's such a good question. Um, I think it is, you know, I, I, um, I started when, when I first started my business, and, and there's a story to it, um, I first started in the career coaching area and helping people with resumes and really helping them learn how to network and communicate with people to get jobs. I actually helped a couple people actually entirely switch industries into new roles. And it's interesting because I remember them saying, um, you know, you should, you should do this for business. But... Um, you know, I actually should back up on this story because it's a good and there's an, an important point to this story for leaders. Um, sometimes people ask, like, how did you get 
you know, how did you get into coaching? Did you know it was what you wanted to do? And especially entrepreneurship, right? Uh, which we've talked a little bit about entrepreneurship, uh, you know, as we've come to know each other. And the reality is, well, there's a funny story. So when I was 17, my parents sent me to a career coach or a, a career counselor, and he gave me this assessment. It's the Cadillac of career assessments. I'm actually certified to administer it now. And they've shown that it is consistent over time. Um, there's very few things that actually shift the results for people. Like if they've had a major cancer scare or something's happened, that might shift the direction that people go. But this is pretty consistent. It's been used since I think the 1920s. It's called um, the Strong Interest Inventory. And I sat down and the counselor looked at me and he said, now there are two things I'm going to tell you to never do. Never be a nurse and never be an accountant, which was hilarious to me because my dad's family, that is what they do. We have multiple accountants and multiple people to have healthcare in some capacity. And I was like, well, I failed the Chipman family. And then he said to me, but you know, you would do really well running a business. And I think I cracked some joke and was like, well, I want all the power, which is so opposite of me. Uh, but I just thought it was funny. And I will tell you how funny I thought it was. So when I I went to school, I did grad school, I started working, I was very happy working for someone. And um, I am so sorry to the people who hear this and were impacted. I'm just going to say there were people that I went on dates with who were like, I run my own business. And I was like, I'm never going to date that person. That's an awful choice. <laughs> and I'm so sorry to say that to everybody. I just did not want to run my own business. And, you know, I, I remember I was working at the university and I was sitting in a meeting and they were somebody, they were talking about a shift. Like I was going to end up doing a lot more instructional development or instructional design around leader development courses, which I enjoy. But I remember the boss looked at us and he's like, so that's our plan for the next three years. And Brandon, I am not lying to you. I can tell you exactly what I thought. I thought this, you might be, but I'm not. And I was like, oh, that's not the path I want to go down. And I pretty, I left pretty soon after and I was looking for, um, I, I was looking actually for additional roles inside a company doing organization development. And it turns out there wasn't a lot of, at least in Salt Lake, there wasn't the size company that I wanted to work with. And I remember laying in bed one night about three months after this and thinking, you know, everybody keeps telling me I should be running my own business, helping them professionally. And I was like, I guess I should do it. And it was done two weeks later. But here's, here's the, the reason this is an important lesson for especially leaders. There is a very interesting set of leaders that I've worked with. Um, it's not all of them, but there is a set of people whose companies have come to them and said, hey, we we love what you do. You bring incredible value and we want you to consider stepping into this role. And they have this wrestle where they're like, you know, sometimes it's, I, I'm, I'm not one who seeks the ego. They, they aren't the ones who are like, I want the position of authority. 
they've, they've just been there doing a good job. I remember someone saying to me once, they said, you know, I never tried to end up in this high of a level. I just wanted to do a good job and care about people. And I get it because I think for me, that was part of it. I didn't want to feel like I was this big voice. And uh, the reality is, and this goes back to the question you asked, have I been preparing for this my whole life? I think it was in me, but I had to come to accept some things. One of which was I had to be ready to say, I do want to step up and help at this in this type of capacity and in this way. And I was a little naive, which was good. Um, clearly, I thought it was a hard path, right? Because I'm turning people down in my, again, so sorry, all you wonderful, good people. Um, I, I had to come to the point where I was ready to do it. And I think for there are some leaders who are struggling with that question. And I will say this, it has been so hard. It has stretched me in ways I never knew it would stretch me. And it is so consistent with the legacy that I want to leave. And it has allowed me to use the skills and the abilities that I think have been innate my entire life. Wow. So it sounds like from the time you identified this as the path you wanted to take, there was a two-week lead time before you were all the way in it. <laughs> oh, I was in. Oh, my all goodness. In. Yeah. Well, of all the people we've interviewed, that is by far the the shortest the shortest time. So you do hold that record. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I often will will run into um, an old friend or a, a distant relative, make a, a new acquaintance. I mean, one of the first questions that you run into is, "What do you do?" Um, yeah. And since what we do is a fairly niche profession, it can be difficult to explain simply. So when you describe what you do. How do you go about that? What kind of words do you use to describe your profession? Okay. You know, it's shifted over time. And to give you any other answer would be disingenuous. Uh, you know, I remember Frank saying that he he talks about helping people grow and develop. And then by the time they get done, they're like, oh, you're working with corporate stuff. Sometimes I just tell people I do HR stuff, candidly. But if you really want to know what I'm doing, I will tell you I work with leaders who have typically one of two or three needs. One, they are really looking to develop and grow. They want to contribute value. They have an eye on it. The second is there are people who are starting to prep for C-roll type jobs. And in those cases, I am a particularly wonderful thought partner. And the third are people who are dealing with just really complex scenarios. Uh, when I get pulled in, and this is one of the questions people ask is, how do you, who brings you in? How do you work with people? I'm, all, I'm almost always brought in by HR. And HR, they, they meet me and they understand that part of what I do is I help prepare the pipeline. But what I really do is I take these people that they have that contributes such great value. And when they talk about these people, they say, we cannot lose this person. They are going to be so great. And if we can polish them a little, we are going to leave our company in really good hands for the future. So that's who they, that's why I'm brought in. But everybody that I work with has their own need. And I would say this, the people that I'm working with want to contribute value. They want to feel valued. And they care about and value the other people they work with, as well as creating good work. 
How do you assess that when you meet someone? You know, is this someone who actually values the people they work with? Is this someone who's going to be interested in following a process of coaching? How do you yeah. vet that at the front side? You know, I have a, my process, my intake process has shifted over time. Um, in fact, there was just a major shift last week. So my process now is I meet with HR and the person's manager, and we have a really good and clear conversation about the person, what their development needs are, and people are honest. There are times, like I can tell you, there are times um, even before this that someone would say, well, I think this is what the issue is. And I will say, how committed is that person to working on this? You can actually get a pretty good benchmark. The reality for executive leaders and senior leaders is their development areas are not new. Not typically. They've had 360 reports. They've been told these things. And, and one of the, actually one of the checks that I have is I actually will ask the leader um, or the, the HR person and their manager, have you explicitly discussed this with your person, the person that you want to receive support for? Um, so that is one of the checks, because if they haven't, then there is a, an explicit conversation. And that sometimes takes things in a different path. The other thing that I'm really mindful of, and I think professionally we all need to be mindful of, is listening for um, why people think this person needs a coach, which is really, really important. And let me give you an example. I had somebody who approached me and they said, you know, I have somebody who's working for me, remarkable talent. Uh, just gets really anxious when they are uh, working on projects. And I'll tell you what, that puts red flags all over the page for me. And the reason why is because if somebody is anxious, it could be multiple things. It could be that they are having massive stress, in which case a coach is not the right fit for them. They need somebody who need they need well-being support. It could be that they actually have... Um, both men and women have have times that there are hormone imbalances or things going on physically that are affecting them, in which case they need a doctor. Uh, that's very different than someone saying, you know, they just, they're really worried about what I think, right? Or they, they kind of hesitate. They haven't found their grounding yet at work. And I would say these conversations have to become ones of listening and being aware of what you don't coach. I don't coach people who don't want to be coached. It is a bad scenario for everybody involved. Uh, I don't, I do not coach problem people. Now this is unique to me. Uh, we know Chris Coffey. He's so good. Um, I think fondly of, of Chris. He, he was so good at, at coaching leaders who were incredibly difficult. Uh, that's not why I'm brought in. I'm brought in for these high value people where they say, hey, we want to make sure we keep them and we want to make sure that they are also developing because in terms of developing the pipeline, that's a critical leader. That's a critical leader. That's a critical leader. That's a critical leader. Uh, so with all of those, even with those critical leaders, I have those conversations and I'm honest about it. I'm upfront about it. I let the companies know, hey, let's make sure this person gets the right help. I usually provide examples like I just did. and and Companies are pretty open and saying, oh, you know, we hadn't thought about that. Maybe maybe they need a coach and, 
this type of thing. So um, I, I think it's a transparency and really listening. Some of it's experience. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat because we're already getting some serious bombs of wisdom. And Emily, I have to thank you again for sharing this. Uh, let's get some quick stats just so we can kind of contextualize what you're sharing and just mm -hmm. how born out of experience this has been. Mm -hmm. How many years have you been formally coaching? Mm, formally coaching since 2012. So it's my 12th year. And how many stakeholder center coaching engagements have you had okay. in those 12 years? Okay. So stakeholder center coaching engagements is a different story because I certified in 2017. So in the last five and a half years, I'm close to 70. Hundreds of interviews. I, I've lost track of how many, how many um, 360 interviews I've done as part of that. Uh, but a lot. <laughs> Emily, you've shared quite a bit about your career. And before we start digging into some of the, the side of entrepreneurialism, you talked about spontaneity and you asked a great question uh, earlier on. I'd love to turn back to earlier on before we clicked record that I'd love to ask you, which is what doesn't the world know about Emily Chipman? What are we in the dark um, about or what should we know about you? Um, you know, that's a really good question. It's really interesting to meet people because... Um, I think there's two sides of two sides of me that that people know or they don't know. And one is this very like polished, I'm going to show up, I'm going to come prepared. And then the other side is I actually think part of why people choose me. I actually asked I asked someone today. I said, "Well, why did you choose me?" Is actually a client I'm working with, and it was really interesting cuz she said, "You know, you are you are you clearly know what you're doing. You have the credentials. You have you have these experiences. Um, but she said, you know, you also have this flexibility to do this in a very kind and compassionate way, but in a way that is motivating and um, is tailored. Now, what was so interesting is she said, when you're coaching. She said, you know, you, there's things that I don't want to do. And then somehow I'm doing it because you've, <laughs> you, you've helped me find this way. And she said, she said she very much feels like she has this voice or this ability to influence and come to the table and talk about what will work. And she finds me working with it. Um, there are times that I have had to, um, I do think this is an important thing to say. I have coached people that I was terrified to take the coaching engagement. It just in my mind, I was like, how can I coach this person? They have this role. Um, now I knew in those scenarios that I had the skill set, I knew I had the qualifications, I knew I could do it, but I was scared. Um, and that's true for me that there are times that I just get up and do it. You heard that earlier with me saying, well, I guess I should start a business. Never wanted to, but Two weeks later, I'm opening a business. Um, and, and I kind of chuckle about that because I think sometimes people think like, oh, you just have these policies or the procedures or there's not this flexibility, but there's actually, I think, a great blend and it creates a lot of fun. Um, I, I did a study abroad in, in Israel for a few months. It was back in 2020 and it snowed for one of the first times in years. And there... Um, 
we were walking through the Kidron Valley and I'm with this group and we'd have this conversation of, oh, it would have been really cool to go sledding or something along these lines. I mean, it was like eight to 12 inches of snow and we're walking and I see out of the corner of my eye, these people who are um, sledding. And I was, I didn't wait for anyone. I just walked up. I was like, can we join you? And it turns out when I finally realized what I was looking at, we were sledding in a blue bathtub. Like they literally had like lifted a bathtub out and were just sledding down it. And my dad, it, it kind of makes me laugh because my dad, I asked my family once, I said, how would you describe me? And my dad was like, oh, you're a spark plug. My, the rest of my family was like, you're going to call her a car part? <laughs> what? But there is this kind of like energy of, of things. And so you see me being like, I'm going to do, I'm going to get on my spin bike and um, I'm, I'm going to opt to be healthy and I'm going to go and get in a blue bathtub and just go for it. I, um, so I think those are kind of some of the things that people don't know that are maybe a little bit more relaxed or fun. And, and I think my clients see that more as we get going. Um, but what they need at first is to know that they're going to be in safe hands and that they're going to be able to come and talk. Uh, so I, I think that that's probably a good way to package the two of those together. Beautiful. Well, you know, knowing you, Emily, I'm, I'm very confident we could spend, you know, at least, at least a couple of interviews talking about your career ascension. Um, but I do want to give our listeners a slightly different perspective. And I'd like to dive into um, what Ben Horowitz calls the hard things uh, about hard things, especially in relation to being a leadership coach. Uh, mm-hmm. A key theme in this season of conversations with coaches as we focus on career development has been this imminent threat of, of imposter syndrome. Pretty much all our guests, and, and myself included, far more than I'd probably care to readily admit to, uh, have been afflicted by it. Is this something you've wrestled with, and what, what has that looked like for you? Um, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. You know, I think I think when we think about when we think about imposter syndrome, so much of it is based on what we think other people need to do. And I'm grateful for the coaching experiences I've had. I, I remember saying to someone, you know, we were we were talking about this, and I had this realization as we were coaching. So one of one of the skills of coaching is being able to name what someone is saying and just mirror it back for them. And I had this realization that as she was thinking about, and and I just want you to imagine, imagine a time that you are, um, you need to approach someone or you need to have a conversation and you are worried about what they're going to say. There's almost this sense of like, they will never listen to me. It's not going to happen. I think, you know, just picture that person in your mind and Here's what I've realized. When you walk away, you have made the decision for them. You have essentially said to them, I'm not of worth. You don't need to listen to me. And we don't know if that's how they feel. I think that's the hard thing about this imposter syndrome is this belief of I need to look this way and or be this way or have this skill and they don't always have it. I'll tell you one of the big things for me was uh, 
I've coached, I have coached some people who I know have influenced a significant majority of the people who have, who live in the United States and outside the United States, highly influential people. And I remember when I started coaching, I was like, why would they listen to me? I wasn't an executive. I wasn't in their role. And I've had to come to realize that's not my job. My job isn't to, well, I have to run my business, but my job has not been to be a Fortune 500 executive. Um, in fact, what's interesting is when you look at large company, companies that, uh, large coaching companies that hire former executives, one of the best ones I looked at on the website actually highlighted not just an executive, they've had coach training. And when I listen to companies like Google, PwC, Salesforce, one of the things they talk about is a really fast way to get fired, which is to go in and tell people what to do. They are asking people to be coaches. So I've had to be really clear about who am I, what are the expectations, um, and do I have the skill set? Um, I, I think there is definitely a way to handle this for sure. And how do you deal with, with fear and doubt in general? Maybe it's imposter syndrome. Maybe it's, it's some other form of, of, uh, this affliction, but what is, do you have a process or a routine that helps you kind of dig out of these holes that we can sometimes get stuck in? Well, I think, as you know, now I walk into the belly of the beast naively. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say there are five things that I would recommend if somebody is dealing with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. The first is get a reality check. The second is to confront your lies ruthlessly. The third is to confront your demons. The fourth is to redefine what constitutes value. And the fifth is not to walk through it alone. Now, let me kind of walk you through this. Um, a reality check. What are you scared of? And I, I mean that, like when you say they're not going to think I'm enough, there is a good point in time to ask yourself, do I know how to do this? And I know we talk about the stretch of saying like, I'm going to take the next assignment. There's a real difference between being on the ladder and reaching for that next level up that's a stretch versus being at the bottom of the ladder and pitching yourself as I'm 10 feet above where I am. That's a real fast way for people to lose confidence in you. And if you sit there and you say, well, they're not going to think I'm credentialed. They're not going to think I have the experience. Um, do you need it? Do you need to go and get it? Take that reality check. And if you want to be brave, own it. There are clients that I have worked with that I have said to them, I want to work with you. I believe I have the skills that you need. And have I worked with someone at your level? I have not, but I do believe that I can help you if you are open to it. But it's honest. It's really, really honest. And it's not, I'm going to hide it. It's just transparent. And it is based in reality of, I haven't done this or I have. Um, and I think this is important. Um, I, I've said this because I think you can get in trouble this way if you don't. Um, I had somebody, a good friend that, that was working with a coach who recommended that he take some actions. And by the way, this is not somebody who specializes in leadership coaching. Um, I, I don't know what it was that they specialize in, but they were like, I've got general coaching skills. I can help you. And part of coaching is to challenge people to go and do things. And the thing that, the, that 
this person challenged my friend to do would have been disastrous for him professionally. As he was telling me this, I was like, oh, whoa, you need to stop. Here's the challenge I would have given you. And if you do what you, you she just asked you to do, it's going to be a real problem. And in talking with him, he immediately was like, oh my gosh, I like the light bulb clicked. No, I should not just go and take action. I probably need to see if my boss likes that. And it, it was very true for that scenario. So I do think it's important to have a reality check. If you need more training, get it. If you need more experience, get it. If you don't have those things, own it. And that's what I mean by reality check. Number two, confront your lies ruthlessly. There are things that I think we all kind of believe about ourselves that we're like, mm, I mean, nobody else is like that. It's just me. And if we really stop and think about it, we know that we're not always like that, or we know that we don't have this intent. And um, one of the questions that I have when someone says like, well, I'm just this, or I'm just this. And I think, well, your report doesn't match that. And you kind of, I think that's your fear, but are you enjoying lying to yourself, telling yourself that that is what you are? I mean, that's a really brazen question to ask. And I really only have, this is a good scenario if you're like, are you really? And someone's like, well, I mean, maybe I'm not all the time. So the question is, why are you telling yourself that? Why are you fostering that belief? What is it doing for you? And I do think we kind of have to look at that. Why are we holding ourselves to double standards? Um, don't cut yourself a break, quote unquote, and allow yourself to just stay in that lie about yourself. If you know it's not fully true, you gotta you gotta acknowledge the good in you. And I am, I am actually very particular with my clients that we do not beat ourselves up, and we don't tell ourselves these lies and foster this. Like we don't do that. Um, number three, confront your demons. Look, I think you positioned this really well when you said we could talk about ascension or we can talk about success, but I think part of what people need to hear about is challenges. And look, if I'm if I'm honest with you, if I'm to be really vulnerable, I've had some great career experiences and I've had some really hard ones. It's not always been sunshine and rainbow, but I have taken those and I have learned from them. And they have helped me learn wisdom. And I can look at those demons and say, and you know, I, that, that is a story for another time because we've all had them. Um, if we ignore them, they will affect how we behave. If we really believe we're not good at communication, we're going to avoid communicating. If we really believe we don't know how to lead people, we avoid it. Um, so I, I do think whatever the demon is, um, you should look at it. And let me tell you what happened when I confronted my demons. Um, two things. One is I will tell you that I had a very tough experience that, um, you know, I, I want you to think about your, like the person that's closest to you and you wake up one day and you realize you've done something that really hurts them. And you didn't mean to, you love them, you care about them, but all of a sudden you realize maybe you haven't been giving them the time that they need, or maybe you haven't been listening to them as well as you need. Um, I had a moment that was a big one for me. And I, 
It is one of the most humbling things that I have ever done to pick up the phone and call family one by one, own it, and follow the stakeholder-centered coaching process. Have them give me recommendations. And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons when, when I coach people, I'm not asking them to do something I've never done. I'm not. I know what it is to say, I've got an area I've got to work on. The other thing that I could tell you about demons is sometimes demons are made of smoke. They're not real. When you look at, and when I, I've done enough interviews now, and I've done, worked with enough people, and I've had enough experience to say that sometimes when something didn't go bad in your career, it wasn't you. It was the team you were part of. It was the way things were structured. And part of dealing with the demons is getting clear about whether or not it was real. And I think sometimes that takes time. Um, it takes additional experience. Um, so that's, that's really what that means. In terms of redefining value and worth, it's consistent with what I've been saying. We need to really think about what makes me a good coach or what makes me a good leader. I'll give you a great example. Open door policies. How many people are like, I want to be a great leader, so I'm going to have an open door policy. Well, let me tell you what happens to executives who have open door policies. They cannot get their work done. That's, that's not actually what's making them valuable. They need to be there to drive strategy, drive vision, have those key conversations where they're doing it, and they need the time to do that. They also need to have an open door for emergencies, for regular check-ins to support their team. But it's not 24-7, my door is open, feel free to interrupt me all the time. And sometimes we, we just don't realize that this idea kind of took over something in some way. Um, but what it becomes is a, a deeper question, not do I have an open door policy, but what do I think makes me a good leader? Is that true for my role now? Is that true and what my team needs in some capacity? And I will just say the last thing, um, which is the fifth thing on my list is don't walk that alone. I have been very grateful for coaches who have called me out on things that I've told myself that have been very limiting. And that's part of why we coach is to help people get out of their head. Um, I will also say that I personally especially as an entrepreneur where things can feel very scary. There's, you know, and I don't know what the line is for everybody, but I think there's a point of time where it's like your family needs to know what's happening. And also sometimes you need a venting place and they're not always the right place to vent. So I have, I have various friends or um, coaches that I go to, to, um, let the steam out a little bit without overwhelming other people. And those people are really good about calling me out when I'm diminishing myself or questioning myself. Could you summarize those five points one more time? This is, this is, this is super. Yeah. So do a reality check, check your fear, see if it's real. If it's real, do something about it. If not, you can let it go. Number two, confront your lies. And these are the lies you may be telling yourself about not being enough. Um, but ask yourself if you enjoy telling yourself that. Most people don't. But it means they have to believe something else about themselves. 
Um, number three, confront your demons in the past. Sometimes that means you need to make a change and it's hard and it is humbling. And sometimes it means giving back and not owning a problem that was never yours. Uh, number four, make sure that you are checking what makes you valuable in your new role with your new team, what they need. And it isn't always about you. Oftentimes they have different needs. So ask them what they need and what would make value for them. And number five, do not do this alone. Find someone that you can talk to who's going to check those thoughts and actually be there to advocate for you and remind you of who you are. Wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, that's three times you have heard this five-point list. There is no reason for all of us not to walk away somewhat changed by this. Thank you, Emily, for sharing. Um, and in the spirit of vulnerability, I'd love to dig into this, this question of, of uh, what lies are we telling ourselves? Mm -hmm. So I would be happy to go first, Emily, if you'd also be willing to follow. But first, I want okay. to invite all of the people who are listening at home, listening at the gym or on the commute tour from work, uh, if you want to actually take the first step towards using stakeholder-centered coaching in your own life, here's your open invitation. Pull out your phone. Pull up the person who is most important in your life. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. It's a child. It's a, a, a family member. Text them this message. How do I be a better blank, a better spouse, a better friend, a better partner, a better parent? How do I be better at blank in the next 30 days? Do you have some suggestions for me? If you are willing and brave enough to do this, tell us your experience with this. Send us a message, podcast at mgscc.net. We'd love to know how this is changing you because this is something that will affect every aspect of your relationships if you can be disciplined and have the courage and humility to actually do this. And it really does start off with finding you know, what do I need to be better at? So those of you who are listening, I invite you to do this. Send us a message how it goes. Um, Emily, the the lie I've been telling myself and I just can't seem to get out of it is I'll have time for it. Mm. I'll have time for this. I'll have time for this. I'm woefully overcommitted yeah. um, and I just can't seem to to kick it. But, you know, to your your point, I've got four other bullets to work on. Um you know, what, what have you been looking in the mirror and telling yourself that you just know isn't quite true? Actually, can we go back to you for a moment? Oh, please do. Because I think this is, this is a really exceptional example. My question is this, why do you feel like you have to say yes? Why do I feel like I have to say yes? You know, I have this, uh, what, what may seem um, as a, let's say, charismatic enthusiasm, but it can really be toxic when I'm trying to balance my priorities. Um, and so I, I do, I feel compelled to do all of the things that I want to do with this, let's say, underlying lie that they're all important, they're all equally important, and I've got the hours in the day and the energy in the tank to actually get it done, and I don't. Yeah. That's why and, I feel compelled. And it almost feels like the lie is, I can do everything. There's no limit to what I can yep. do, yep. which that's, that's a hard one to dig yourself into. Yeah, and it's I've, not about doing everything. It's about saying, where do I want to focus? Mm -hmm. Like, what if you actually said, I'm not going to do everything. I'm just going to do the important things. Well, it's mm -hmm. a very different message. And some of it's about what you want to, you know, believe about yourself. 
Um, for me, this is really interesting because I've been thinking about this as we were um, in the days coming up. I have, so as context, when I worked at the hospital, I did a Six Sigma type project that worked on leader, um, new leader onboarding. And depending on the research, some people say 30%, some people say 70% of executives fail in the first 18 months. And when you look at the list, it's things like they made decisions too fast without getting to know the culture. The expectations changed for them um, and they weren't made aware of it. They haven't taken the time to get to know people and listen enough. And when you hear that list, I think for a long time I was like, well, if I did any of those things, that means I'm a bad person. And I'll tell you my reality check is that as I was reading this, I was like, there's a lot of really good leaders who are working on those same things. Why am I just absolutely trashing myself if I have a moment that I need to, you know what? I have some things I'm not good at yet. And actually going through that reality check to say, is that absolute has been really, even just in the last few days, kind of helpful for me to realize, oh, Actually, that's brought me some good wisdom, some of those missteps that I don't care to relive. But nobody does, right? Like we have those moments where we're like, that was a bad day. Can we sweep that one under? Like my, you know, like I used to do as a kid, I just sweep it under the bed. I cleaned up the room, mom. Uh, no, no, I, I actually didn't. Uh, but I think that's one of the big things is this idea of like, a perfect career or a perfect coach is perfect and has never made a mistake ever professionally. It's not real. It's not real for anyone. It makes us more human to have these mistakes, if anything. Yeah. Um, Well, we have, uh, we've, we've spent some time in this season um, looking at the challenges related into transitioning into coaching, uh, but we also make significant transitions into entrepreneurship when becoming a coach. And for some of us, this is more natural than others. Uh, mm-hmm. It may not feel all that natural to those whose professional or academic backgrounds aren't uh, a business specific field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you began your coaching journey, we know that entrepreneurship was something that that motivated you. What was what did you find to be one of the hardest parts about actually becoming a coach entrepreneur? Mm. Well, let's just make sure that it's clear. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur, and so I never read any books. I don't have an MBA, and I think you know enough now to say she'll just walk up and ask someone if she can jump in their blue bathtub and go sledding. Um, Good or bad, I just took the leap, right? And bless my family's heart. They know this about me. They they know when I'm like, I'm going to go do this they know that I'm actually also going to give it my all. And so there's a few things that are really important to this story. One of which is I am a fiscally conservative person. So when I stepped in and started entrepreneurship, I was like, well, I want to do this, but I don't think I can fully support myself like while I'm waiting. And I actually went out and got a part-time job. I mean, I'm in my 30s and I was like, hey, there's this like super high-end fashion store. Um can I come work for you in the evenings? Like these days, like I just went in and offered and got a job and 
Um, I'd work really hard on my business during the day. And then I would do, do that at night. Um, I had no clue what I was doing. Seriously. My first marketing effort was a threefold pamphlet that looked like a high schooler designed it and not the really talented high schoolers of today who are taught graphic design. Like my niece is actually, she was running her own graphic design business. Like by the time she's a freshman in college. And I just was like, oh, I think you just walk up to people and tell them and they'll hire you. And part of that is because people had told me you're really good at this. You should open a business. And so I was like, well, I guess I just tell people I do it and they pay me. Um, That's not how it worked. It just wasn't at all. Um, What did end up happening is I had good connections who were at companies who were looking to do things. And as I shared with them in very natural conversations, what I was doing, it brought up conversations and that opened doors. I still think like, Brandon, you probably look at numbers on social media and know that kind of stuff. I still don't. I probably should. Uh... I still think I'm on this entrepreneur journey. I, I just, I'll just put that out there. Um, it's like going it. well, but also kind of flying by the seat of my pants on some days. Well, that's the way Good to do bad. it. That's how many entrepreneurs uh, survive. I can certainly commiserate with the, yeah. you know, if you're constantly flying by the seat of your pants, you may be on the cutting edge consistently and figuring it out as you go. Or maybe that's a lie I'm telling. We'll see. Time oh, will tell. Let's tell ourselves um, that lie. That's a lie we can believe. (laughs) I'm just going to put draw roses all around my mirror so I can tell myself this in the morning. Yeah. Um, You know, you mentioned going into this cold, not having the background, not having the the library full of entrepreneurship books. Um, If you could go back and do this all over again, what would you make a higher priority in terms of preparation that you Mm. didn't, that just didn't quite make the cut the first round? What would you do differently? Okay. Can I tell you what I did do well? Because it's going to tell you what I didn't do well. Mm -hmm. Um, For, I'm very grateful to, well, let me just put it this way. Remember that story about not liking entrepreneurs? I somehow forgot and didn't realize until three or four years ago that my entire family is entrepreneurs. My grandfather ran his own business. On my dad's side, on my mom's side, my grandmother, when my grandfather passed away, he was 72 and she still had to provide for herself. She went back and took graduate level accounting courses and took over the business. My dad owned a business. My mom owned a business. I was lucky because somebody said to me, you need to set up an LLC. You need to have a separate bank account. You need to know what kind of software you're going to use. So that's the stuff that most people don't do that I would say, because I, I hear a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm interested in this and I like doing it. And they haven't thought through, do you need to check the copyright on your business name? I had those in place. What I didn't have in place and what I wish I would have done so much earlier is work with a business coach to help me understand and learn how to do marketing, how to do sales, how to do pricing. Uh, My coach, Ann Farrell, she's been so incredibly helpful for me. And I think I spun my wheels a little bit for a couple of years. Um, So I wish I had done that. I will tell you the other thing that I wish I could have told myself looking back is this. What you are building now is not what you're going to create. And I say that because, you know, there's people who are like, oh, I'm going to build a widget. And they build like a yo-yo or something. 
Um, I think that was an actual example from my graduate program. Someone used that as a as a, a, a case study. Um, I'm not building those, but even those, they kind of go through iterations to find like the best version of it that sells as best as possible. Uh, my entrepreneurship has been a journey where it has continually been customized and it has continued to grow. And what I am thinking about doing now is not at all what I had thought about doing before. And part of that is influenced because I'm trying to look to the future. And the future that exists today is nothing like what I pictured seven years ago. Um, so I think I would just say this. I know that you are trying, like if I could look back at Emily getting started, naive as she was, I think I would still look back at her and say, Emily, I know you are trying to give 150%. And I know you want to do it perfectly. And I know you feel like it's going to all be on your shoulders. And if you don't, you might lose the business and you're not going to be able to get your Friday movie night in because you don't have any money. Um, and I think I would say this, it's okay. 85% is fine. Don't do 30%. If you, if you don't, I mean, do more than 30%, but if it's not a hundred percent, it's okay. And whatever you came up with, it's also not a hundred percent and that's okay. I think some of it was the mindset that I just needed a little bit of a shift there. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. I hope everyone is taking notes on this. It's okay to not be perfect when you're starting out or when you've been doing this 10, 20, 30 years. It's okay to fumble through it. It's okay to figure it out, but it's not okay to over commit yourself. Ah, now we're back to the, the lies I we know. tell ourselves. I know. <laughs> oh boy. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. I need the, need the feedback. I appreciate it. Um, well, you know, we, we know that, uh, and we've talked about this in a few of these interviews is that failure to, to some degree will always be a, almost a rite of passage for new coaches, mm -hmm. um, and entrepreneurs. And that's something I've seen personally, but I, I'm curious if, if you share the same thoughts, if you agree, um, yeah, I, I would say that, that, that failure is a rite of passage to becoming a successful coach. Would you agree mm. with that statement, Emily? Well, I have a hard time embracing the idea of failure because failure mm -hmm. to me feels very like the end, right? Yeah. I was actually thinking about this. Have I ever made a terrible decision as a coach? Um, you know, I made missteps. My very first coaching engagement uh, I let somebody's manager be a stakeholder who shouldn't have been. And mm. it really kind of, it made it very difficult for the, for the client. The thing is I worked my way through it. When I recognized it, I did something about it. Um, I think, and I think this is also a little bit different because of the coach certification that I've had. So when I did, you mentioned at the beginning that I'm a certified professional coactive coach. That requires 200 hours of education. You are required to co do 100 hours of coaching. Part of those hours have to be audio recorded by a professionally certified or master, cert sorry, professionally accredited or master accredited coach through ICF. And you have to send in these recordings. And I'm just going to tell you, it was bad. My first time, and, and by the way, I'm really grateful that my bad coaching experiences 
And who knows? I mean, maybe another one will come in the future. But I was grateful that at least in learning the skill sets, I was learning on people I could learn on. Um, and that weren't the high high risk types of things. Like now when I go in and work with an executive, I know what my processes are. I know how I modify. I know what the interactions are. Um, I know that there are some coaches or some leaders that I'm like, I'm going to give you a super direct, really hard message. They want it. They want to be pushed like that. And then there's the other people that, like I mentioned the one earlier who was like, I didn't want to do it. And somehow I'm doing it. And you just have this way of helping me feel like I just want to do these things. Um, I know how to flex with it. Uh, but really, my first three days in a coaching training, in a, in a coach training that was really legitimate, um, by day two, I was almost in tears. I was like, I don't understand how to ask questions. I don't know what I'm bringing to the table. I don't get it. And on day three, there was this practice that we needed to do where we were sitting in front of a partner and... I went through this set of questions and this person had this really transformational experience. And I hate the word transformational, but there was a major breakthrough in how she was thinking about something. And I finally felt like I could get it. I think we need those wins. I I do think we need those wins. Um, And I guess for me, the reason I have a hard time feeling like failure is a rite of passage is because I feel like I'm always learning and I feel like I'm always growing. And I I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Falling forward, I think, is a better perspective on on failure. But we know... We know that failure is part of learning or maybe discomfort and certainly yeah. um, being bad at something before you're, you're good yeah. at. But like you said, the good news is that when you pair uh, failure and you pair it with learning, um, you have a tremendous amount of opportunity. I think, it was, uh, I think it was the Stoic philosopher Seneca who talked about luck um, in these mm-hmm. times of failure as being that intersection between your preparation and your opportunity both of which come or stem from failure. So let's talk about how um, these failures have ultimately led to the career that you have today. Um, And I'll start by asking, how historically have you turned failure into opportunity? Or what is your process for that? You know, I want to answer this with a story. Um, Because I think sometimes we think if you can make it through the first year or you make it through the second year, you're great. Um, last year is one of the hardest years I have ever had in my life. And without going into too many details, I think I I will say this. There was a day that my mother wrote in her journal. I think Emily has just had the worst day she is ever going to live in her life. And it was, it was a hard year. It was a really hard year and there were impacts on business. There were so many different things that happened. And what's so interesting, because you now know, I'm like, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's like that song from Frozen, the second one, where it's like, just do the next right thing. And the biggest darkness you have, you just take that one next step. Um, There is a really important part of this. Um, Now, whether or not you're religious doesn't matter, but I want you to listen to this story for the analogy. Um, 
in the Old Testament, there's a story of Moses who has this staff and Israel is having a fight. And as long as Moses is holding up the staff, Israel is winning. But as his arms start going down, it they start losing. And his brothers are watching this. Uh, I think it's his brothers. We'll probably get a correction on that <laughs> in the podcast. And he, they see this and they do two things. First of all, they bring a rock over and they have him sit down. They give him rest. And then they took his hand and they held him up so he could finish the job. And I will just say, in the hardest year of my life, I have said before, you got to turn to people. But I mean that so literally. I did two things. Well, I did three things. Um, first of all, I remember this one night that I was just like, this is so hard. There's so much. And I remember having this thought, you need help. And the help that came was in uh, three forms. One was a coach who showed up and I made the biggest investment I have ever made in my life, in my, in my work in the year that it felt like the worst decision ever. Now, you know that I have this thing where I, um, or, or if you don't, I believe that wisdom comes when you can reconcile your heart with your mind and that can lead to some big wrestles, right? Like you think about, um, you wanna feel good about it and you wanna know it makes sense and it can take time to get it connected and to figure out the right path. Um, but there are other times that I'm like, I just knew I needed to do it. And I have been so thankful that I did. Number two, I called my family and I told them, this is what has happened. This is where things are at. And I need your help. And number three, I had a few friends that I chose to talk to. And, um, so interesting because throughout the year I'd have this, like, I just kept going. I kept moving forward. Um, I decided to look at this and say, what is this gifting me? What is the gift? What do I need to receive from these experiences that has impacted every aspect of my life? And by taking that approach, it made me a lot more open to say, number one, I need help because I don't know what I don't know. I need someone to either teach me or to take me by the hand or to walk me through. It's the gift I give to my clients. They know what the area of development is. They know what the problem is, but I have this gift to go in, do these 360 interviews and people just open up to me and not in ways they do to other people. I can, I can help people move from like, I'm afraid to say this to like bearing their souls in ways that I'm like, Whoa, we got real open there. Um, but I know from that how to help clients in a really unique way. And I needed someone. I needed someone. I needed connection with my family and I needed support. Um, my family is both spiritual and religious. Not all families are like that. That's fine. We This is just where we've landed. Um one of the most touching things that ever happened to me that year is my family decided to do a day of fast and prayer for me and gave up eating for 24 hours. Just, and, and I'll tell you what, like whether you are religious, whether you're spiritual, whether you're not religious, um, whether you have, don't have anything there, having someone call you and say, I'm not going to eat 24 hours because I'm thinking of you and I'm going to send goodwill. 
um, what a gift of love and support. It was the support that I, that I needed. Um, I think this is so important because we want to think that when we open a business, we're going to open it and it, and maybe there will be some hard knocks, but it'll be fine and we'll get through it. And then we're going to have this successful business. And the reality is life happens. Life happens. We have things that happen to kids. We have things that happen to spouses. We have health issues. And sometimes we have to redirect and reposition. And, um, I will say with all of that, ask for help. Don't go it alone. Um, entrepreneurs have significantly higher rates of um, depression, anxiety, and suicide. And I know that's like a super candid thing to say. I, I have not struggled with those, but I know people who have. And I think it's one of the reasons to share a story and say in the seventh year of business, it was hard and I needed help. And by asking for help, it pulled me through. So for anybody who's having a hard time, I would say, give yourself the rest and reprieve that you need and ask for help. Don't be afraid to. It will help you walk the journey. Um, I will also say the other thing, and I referenced this earlier, I'm a fiscally conservative person. So as I have had success, I have not gone and spent the money. I actually built into my plan the idea there will be a year or two where it is going to be hard. And so because of that, as the economy is hit, as, as I had these things happen in kind of like a perfect storm, I had a safety net and, and it made it so much more doable. It, it, um, I feel very, very grateful. So, um, super honest, hope it's helpful for someone. It certainly is. I think that we we have we could easily do a whole season on entrepreneurial tactics to prov to to provide yourself with these safety nets. But um, you know, you talk about asking for help, and when leaders come to you to ask for help, when HR comes to you for ask for help with one of their leaders, it very likely is one of the worst years of their leadership life, and you get mm -hmm. to provide the same quality of life improvements for those leaders when you come in as a coach. Mm. when go ahead may i just pivot here and just say i that is not the case for the people i coach i have a really unique set of people that bring me into coach um what i do find though is that sometimes people go into a year and hard hits mm. i have had people say um, and, and I do mean this when HR brings me in, they are thinking about who's in our pipeline. We want to develop them. We want them to know we care. We want them to know they're interested. The 360 may be hard, but these are not the people that are like, we're firing you if you don't do this. Um, I have to know, like, I don't go in for those circumstances. Um, if anything, and this is the interesting thing. So HR calls me for a reason and leaders work with me for very different reasons. HR calls because they say, hey, we want to give someone an opportunity. We want to get a really strong bench of leadership and we're going to do everything we can to support this person. And it's very focused on build the pipeline. Leaders, what I find is that when they're, when at least for these leaders that work with me, what they're saying is, I want to contribute value. I am really stretched for time. I want to make sure I'm managing this work well. And 
I'm going to take any resource. These people are focused on um, taking advantage of this for the good in their life. I, I do think an important story, though, about this, which ties your thought and mine together. I was coaching during COVID. And we had leaders, I had leaders say to me, I thought I was going to be so, I, I thought I didn't have any time for this at the beginning of the year. Like, I don't have time. I've got other stuff I need to do. And they said, but as we started working, then COVID hit. And because of the work that we had done, it made it possible for me to manage their crisis much better. Uh, so I would just put that out there that like, I almost feel like I'm like not in the crisis world of coaching. Mm -hmm. Probably good to just clarify. Well, it's also a very good place to be. I'm sure many of our coaches would be satisfied. There are, as you mentioned, those like Chris Coffey who just thrive working with some of the toughest cases. Not all of yeah. us are like that. Um, but yeah, working with the good ones certainly makes a difference. Um, then think about your, your average client, let's say. Just uh -huh. the average run-of-the-mill engagement, not the average okay. client. Run-of-the-mill engagement. Um, you know, you've worked with them for, oh, let's say 12 months. Uh -huh. What kind of concrete results uh, can they expect in those 12 months working with you? Mm, okay. So I'm on track for, this is really funny. I, a hundred percent of the leaders I have worked with have become measurably more effective. Now we know in terms of like the large numbers of people, it's more like 95%. So I'm still waiting for the 5%, but right now we've been consistent. Um, in addition, they report things like driving strategy forward improved relationships, an improvement of trust. Um, I actually have had somebody who, uh, so I use a slightly different measurement um, tool than the mini survey that's been customized for some of the things that I'm measuring. Uh, but I actually had someone say like, hey, team decided to stay because it was a great experience. I also have leaders, and I think this is such a cool story when this starts happening, that as they're talking all of a sudden with people and engaging with people, the people that are their stakeholders start coming to them and saying, hey, you know, I really want to work on a goal too. Can I check in with you on my goal? And mm -hmm. what, what we talk about is when you are truly doing this and owning it and you're really looking to work on the goal, it doesn't go one way. It's also, mm -hmm. thank you so much for your help. How can I help and be supportive to you? And so you see it start spreading out in some really cool ways. Here's the other thing that my clients have reported financial savings to departments, promotions. Um, there's actually somebody who got a promotion based on their after action review. HR Reddit was like, whoa, this person's a boss. Let's get them in for interviews. Um, as I mentioned, leading more effectively during times of crisis, clarity around steps, like where, what do they want to take the next step professionally? Um, some decide they do, some they say they don't, but they come away with the clarity. Uh, and most of all, I would. it's really interesting because if you actually ask them if they're less stressed, I think there's a number of people who would say, I'm better able to influence, I'm a more effective leader, I'm a little bit less stressed, and I feel like I am thriving and really contributing value in the company. Mm. And are these, uh, would you call these typical results? Uh, nothing you've said yep. sounds extraordinary. It sounds like this is what the, the average uh, engagement with you uh, could yes. expect. Yes. Okay. Extraordinary. Someone credited me with getting married. Um, oh, okay. I was wow. like, cool. That's awesome. 
Uh, that, that feels extraordinary. Um, also just to be clear, I am not a dating coach. I am not going to coach you on dating. Please don't contact me. I'm single. I clearly haven't fixed it myself. Not that it needs fixing. Um, so, but you know, they worked on skills that benefited their life. And I think cannibally, that's, I think the coolest moment for me when I'm sitting in a coaching engagement and someone says, Oh, I was at home. And I had this sudden realization I've been working on this. And because I've been working on it so much at work, my, I had this instinct to do it at home and it made things so much better with my kid or my spouse or, um, and that's where I start feeling really excited because that's when, when I know, you know, I had a client who said, she said, Emily, I, she said, the thing about you is I always felt like you wanted me to help develop professionally but you also cared as much about the goal as you did about me as a leader, as a whole person. And, um, and I do, I get so excited when people are able to say and realize like this goal I'm working on here has the potential to benefit my family relationships, my relationships with friends. Um, that's where I get really charged up, which you probably just heard from my voice getting super excited. Um, but I love that. I love it. It's good. And I, I do want to give one one clarification I think is really important. And I didn't realize until recently, many of us haven't uh, caught on to. Um, and it comes down to the research that was started with leadership as a contact sport surrounding the 95% uh, of people who follow up having mm -hmm. measurable improvement in 12 months of, uh, of leadership development. That is not 95% of people who had a coach. That is 90 at the full population. And I have to iterate, this study has been repeated five times by external parties. I have personally done one. I am in the midst of our sixth. Uh, mm -hmm. The study is solely with people who do not have a coach. So what we know mm -hmm. is that 95% of people who self-implement this process get better. The research that we've conducted of people who have implemented with a coach, 100% of them have gotten better. But that is obviously very uh, axiologically biased. Uh, yeah. It's it's invalid because we are the ones doing those studies and they're working with our coaches. So take it with yeah. a grain of salt. But 95% of self-implementers get better. So again, ladies and gentlemen, those of you listening at home, this is as easy as it gets. Pull out your phone. Text your spouse, how do I be a better spouse in the next 30 days? What suggestions do you have for me? After your spouse finishes laughing, after your kids finish laughing, after the phone call that says, oh my God, are you dying? Why are you asking me this question? Get some responses, build an action plan, tell them these are the new behaviors you can expect from me. Watch out for them and call me out if I start to backslide. That is as simple as it is. So. Um, Emily, you know, there's so many questions I want to ask you, uh, but we are coming to the top of our time. So I want to shift and, and, and talk a little bit about advice. There are many coaches who are listening to you, many entrepreneurs who are listening to you and saying, how do I build the success that Emily has? I'm at the starting line. What advice do you have for someone who is just starting their own coaching business? Or what advice would you give them about risk and failure or pressures and releases? Yeah. What do you have to say? Um, have a plan. And that sounds crazy to put it like that, but the plan is not just, I'm going to coach. If you're going to run a business, run a business. That means think about 
How will finances be handled? How will marketing be handled? Who's going to handle the legal? And part of that mindset is actually realizing, you know, I, I actually don't like the phrase solopreneur because I have a finance team. It's the accountant I pay. I have a legal team. It's the lawyer I pay. Are they in my company? No, they're not. But I have a team of people. And if you, th that's, I think that's actually good mentally to realize like, no, I run a business and here's who's part of my team. It can feel a lot less isolating. Um, but part of that too is really thinking about what does it mean to run a business? You need to think about what it takes to run a business. You just do. I was very fortunate because I had people who said, you need to open an LLC. You need to do this. You need to do this. Um, so that's one of them. And, and it's very specific to running the business. Number two, um, be honest with yourself about your skills and abilities. And I mean this in two ways. One is... Um, <clears throat> As a coach, do you actually have these skills and experience that you need? Do you need more? Do you need something different? Um, or do you have enough? And be honest with yourself both in owning that. So don't cut yourself off and say you're less, but also don't sell yourself for more than you are. So just be honest with yourself. The other thing that you need to be honest with yourself is what you love and you don't love in running a business. If you truly hate doing something like marketing or sales, you will not get business. So find a business coach if you need. If you're great at it, but you hate doing QuickBooks, find someone who will do your QuickBooks for you. Um, it will feel a lot better if you can put your energy in the areas where you are really good and allowing other people to lift you. In the um, CTI community, there's this concept called um, where you're initially like unconsciously incompetent. You don't know and you're just bad. You're consciously incompetent, meaning I'm bad, but I know it. And then you have conscious competence. Now, there's other people who call this like conscious working in your greatness or something along those lines. Uh, but essentially, it means I'm doing pretty good, but I'm really having to think about it. And then there's the area where like, I'm just naturally good at this. It's, I'm unconsciously super competent. And if you have an area where you are like, I know I'm really bad and it's going to be critical to the business, ask for help. Um, have a financial plan. I've been very grateful for that. Um, and I think also have, have a plan for if things get hard. Who are you going to turn to? Don't make it only your spouse or your, you know, business partners even. Sometimes they need a break. Um so if you have those things, I think it's going to be really good. And the other thing that I would say is, um, and I saw this in a professional development course that I took a little bit ago. This woman was talking about being on video and communicating. And she said, I want you to think about your favorite food and the last time you had it. Like just, I feel like all the listeners here, Brandon, think about your favorite food. Um, Ren right now is s'mores, which I'm kind of embarrassed about, but also kind of love. Um, think about um, think about one of the best vacations you've ever been on. And maybe your vacation was half a day. Um, I, I have kiddos in my life. Uh, sometimes the best part of the day is like I'm in the closet and they can't touch me. <laughs> Whatever it is, I want you to go to that place where you're like, I feel really good. Um, and if you just hold that for a minute, that is the feeling that you want to approach people with when it comes to your business.
right? Like that's the joy. If you go to someone, you're like, it was the worst year of my life and it was so bad and I need a client. People are going to be like, oh, that's really great. And I'd love to help you. And also this just feels heavy, right? So you can have the heavy moments. I just think for me, that's the other thing is like, sometimes we need to live in the joy. And I, um, you know, joy for me, I love British gardening shows. Netflix has me tagged as gentle British reality. Um, I didn't even know that was a genre. Maybe they made it for me. Um, I have watched like every episode of Doc Martin with my family. Um, I love being with my, our little, the grandbabies in our family. They're very, they're great. And you know, you got to have those moments too. So with all of the learning, with all of these things, I would go back to those really top three principles. Give your best. If you know you need more training and you don't need more experience to do that, go and do it. But give your best and be okay with the best. If it's 95%, that's great. If there's only 30% in the tank on a day and you give that 30%, well, good for you. You gave that 30%. Don't shame yourself because there wasn't 90 in the tank that day. Remember the people who are important. Honor your family on this entrepreneurial business, like road trip. If you are a leader and you are struggling and you're wanting to connect with people or support people and you look at that, keep your eye on that. Don't let go of the people because they're going to help you get where you need to go. And number three, don't let go of living that meaningful life. If your health is important, don't let it go. If your family is important, don't let it go. Keep the most important things in your life a priority. Wonderful. Well, we are nearing the <clears throat> we are nearing the top of our time together, and I want to invite those of you who are watching from home, listening on your commute, or just tuning in from wherever you are. I invite you to join the conversation. If there's a question you'd like to ask, or if there's a coach you'd like to see interviewed, drop us a line. Podcast at mgscc.net. And if you're interested in learning more about our program, go to mgscc.net forward slash sample course, all one word, sample course, to get instant access to the course Foundations of Stakeholder-Centered Coaching, where you can learn the founding principles of our coaching methodology at no cost to you. Emily, it's been wonderful to have you. And just before we say goodbye to our listeners, can you tell us how to follow your story or even get in touch with you? Yeah. If you are in HR and you're looking to bring in coaches, I have subcontractors that I've brought in. Um, and I, of course, do coaching. And if you are a leader and you're looking for coaching, I'd say email me. If you are a coach, we'll drop a link there for you where um, I have a list where every now and again, I email things out to coaches that can be helpful for them. Um, so that's a great way for coaches to connect with me. And you can always follow me on LinkedIn. Emily Chipman, I'm here. Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Master Coach Emily Chipman, you can find her on LinkedIn. We'll include the links down below in our show notes. This was a Stakeholder Centered Coaching production where we believe everyone deserves a Stakeholder Centered Leader. Join us next time for another episode of Conversations with Coaches.